Today we get the, the privilege of having Danny share with us from the Word. Danny is our campus pastor in Carpentry and uh, has been serving there with us and, and just doing amazing stuff. I hope that you'll maybe give a little word on how things are going there, but um, just a privilege to have Danny as a part of our church and in leadership and a joy to be able to encourage him in his pastoral ministry. And so I invite you to open your hearts to him and to the word as he leads us today. Thanks, Danny. Well, thank you. Good morning. Jake, what a, what a good song. Did you listen to what they were singing? That was basically my sermon, so you guys are all dismissed. <laughs> no, but uh, he wants again. I didn't know this song at all. I just uh, told Jake I will be preaching on this, so if you have some songs that go well with it, and he's so much more talented in this stuff than, uh, like this than I am. But the thing is, we're not just singing here to kind of sound good. It's not an affirmation of how wonderful, how voices sound together. But really what we're doing is through our singing, letting God bring us in tune with him. And um, you know, that's why it's such an important part of it. I always used to like the preaching part better than the singing part, but I really have come full, uh, full circle on this. And uh, I, I really, and thanks for, uh, for leading us in worship. Anyway, um, I am Danielle Eidi. I am indeed uh, the campus pastor in uh, Carpentria. That's why many of you might not know me. Uh, when you think about the pastors in this church, you tend to think of James and Jake. But behind every good guy, there is me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, No, but we have been uh, at this thing in Carpentaria now for a while. And um, really what is interesting is we started basically from nothing. And what that does is when you start from nothing is you are forced to ask yourself questions about church that I think are healthy for all of us to ask ourselves every now and then. Really, what is church all about? Why are we doing what we're doing? How are we going about our business? And it really, in that sense, has been more of... A, a journey of personal growth almost than, than really just growing a church. Uh, at this moment, we're still just out in the community. We don't have an, uh, an, uh, a worship service yet, but we're partnering up with things like C CEF. Uh, so we're in the schools uh, providing Christian education to kids. Uh, we're having community garden, and we're just heavily involved with just um, coming up with partnerships over there, and I would love to report a little bit more on that later on, but I actually did prepare something that I wanted to share with you guys. So, uh, but if you have questions about Carpentria, feel free to talk to me. I'm, uh, I'm excited about that place, so uh, hopefully I can convey some of that when I, when I talk to you. Anyway, um, when I, I just want to speak on my behalf, but I think I speak on the behalf of, uh, of, of both these guys. When we are preaching, we really don't stand before you on the merit of better lives or higher intelligence or more theological background. But what we really want to do, or at least what I want to do this morning, is kind of take the Word of God for what it is and kind of let it speak to us and myself included. The thing that I'm going to be talking about today 
it's really been something that has become somewhat of a personal, personal issue for me, and I shared a little bit about this in, uh, in the board meeting. Uh, it's kind of the balance line between knowing and doing in, in the Christian life. Uh, so I want to spend some time on that. But the good thing is when you have issues as a pastor, you get the chance to preach on it and convict other people that they have the same issue so you don't feel so lonely anymore. So that's what I will be doing. If you feel a little bogged down when you walk out of this place, then uh, I'm sorry for that, but I think it's, it's good stuff. Does anybody know what a prequel is? A prequel? I think there's now the beginning of the, of the apes, or the, 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 what's the, the movies, the planet of the apes, and now they go before that. That's what I'll be doing today. Um, we, before Jake finished up his incredible series on tents and temples and tabernacles, James actually took us to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew. And the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew is not a very fun chapter. It is a call to hard work and difficulty. And although there is incredible promise in the chapter of God helping his people, carrying out the mission in the world, I think if you would just ask anybody of the street, like, is this the kind of life that you want to live? I think most of us would say, uh-uh, not, not for me. So, in, so what I want to do is kind of go right before chapter 10 that kind of shows a little bit on how chapter 10 came about. Because I think it, it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not just all of a sudden that Jesus grabbed these guys and said, okay, your life is going to be hard, it's going to be tough, I'm going to help you, but this is it. There was something that went that exceeded that, and I want to look at that. So um, consider my uh, message today as a prequel to James's message in uh, of chapter 10. So if you want to open up your Bibles, I am actually in uh, the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, starting verse 35. It's going to be up on the screen. If you would be so kind to stand with me, and when I'm done reading, uh, if you could say, I will say the word of the Lord and you can say, thanks be to God. It's a short passage, so why don't we just read it together? Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, Jesus was a busy guy. I don't know if you picked up on that. Right in the first verse, he said he went through all towns and villages. You just have to scroll up chapter 9 and you see his healing, his teaching, he's setting people free. He is a busy guy. Now the area where he was ministering was uh, about the size of Puerto Rico. Um, and there is an ancient historian that uh, worked in that area that we get actually a lot of information from that does not directly come out of the Bible. But his name was Josephus and he estimated that there were about 200 cities in that area where Jesus was ministering, with about an average population of 15,000 people. Now, if you do the math, and I fortunately prepared, so I'm not stumbling as Jacob did last week with his A plus B is C. <laughs> this is, 
This is over three million people. Over, over three million people. That's, that's a lot of people where Jesus was ministering to. And he says, it literally says here, he went to all the towns and villages. Now, it's comforting to know that Jesus was a busy guy too, because I think most of us would say, we are busy people. We don't have a lot of time in the day, and we really can use some empathy from Jesus in this regard. The problem for us is that that's kind of where the similarities end. He was busy, we were busy. But the problem is when I'm busy, I tend to care less about people. Jesus, on the other hand, did not. He cared deeply about other people. It says down here that he was preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, the word compassion here is actually a mild translation. What it really means, the, word is, the Greek word is palanktai, and what that means is in your bowels, literally in your bowels. It's here when you feel it, when you call for the first time that cute girl, and you hope that she picks up the phone and will actually go out with you. But it's also where you feel it when you hear the devastating news after your biopsy comes back or your blood test result. So Jesus, when he saw these crowds, these crowds was literally bent over, out of breath, uncomfortable because of what he was feeling for them. Now most of us are surrounded by people who do not walk with Christ. And yet we tend to pass right by them without feeling it in our God, the way that Jesus did. Now, why is that? Why don't we feel the same thing as Jesus did? Jesus describes these people and he says they were harassed and they were helpless. Now, harassed is also being translated, can be translated molested. And helpless as be, is, is actually a wrestling term. It's like when you're on the mat and you cannot, you're violently pinned down and you cannot move anymore. If you want to understand the depth of Jesus' compassion for lost people, try to imagine this picture. You're taking an evening walk, you have a hard day of, uh, of work, and you're up on the bluffs in Santa Barbara. Just cool air is going to your, to your hair, and you're just minding your own business. And you're walking, and all of a sudden you hear some muffled noises and some grunts coming out of that direction. And you look, and what you're seeing is a guy, big guy, violently pinning down a little girl. And he's molesting her. Now, I'm sorry for this terrible thought, but this is kind of the feeling that Jesus has when he sees lost lost people. And we, I just want to get into the heart of Jesus a little bit. If you were to see this scene, you would not think twice if you had to care about the situation or not. You would be filled with rage, and you would immediately go to help or call 911 or whatever you need to do. You see, this is not the way that I usually view people, and I don't think I'm the only one in this room who does not tend to look at lost people this way. Often we see the sin and we judge the sinner. When I see a talk of, of, of youth putting graffiti on walls, or when I see them vandalizing somebody's property, I think, man, these are wicked people. I hope they get what they deserve. 
Or when I see somebody in the middle of the night staggering all drunk out of a bar, I think, what a fool. He should deserve his own punishment. You see, our natural response is not the same as our, what our spiritual response ought to be when we see things through the eyes of Jesus. But can you imagine how different our church would look and ultimately how different the world would look if we were able to look past these calloused exteriors of sinners and see them for who they really are? Victims who are being molested by the enemy and are violently pinned down? You see, Jesus tells us that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, biology happens to be my vocation, so I know a thing or two. And the, one of the things that I get to enjoy uh, is the fact that, because I work with beneficial insects, uh, which are insects that kill bad insects in agricultural crops. Now, the cool thing about this is that God has created every species with a defense mechanism to help him survive itself from the, from, the, from the animal higher up on the food chain. Have you ever wondered what that is for sheep? Have you ever wondered what protects a sheep, the sheep from, uh, from being eaten by the next one up on the food chain? And most of the time, that's a wolf. I mean, is that his lightning fast speed? <laughs> I mean, round body, short leg? I don't, I don't think so. Is it his ferocious growl or his big teeth? Mm-mm. What about his incredible camouflage? <laughs> Puffy white creatures on rolling green hills? I don't think so. And we also know it's not really their intelligence either. So now for some of you, you might have paid attention to the biology class. And you will say, you know what, their strength is in numbers. Now, for a group of wolves or a pack of wolves, that's really the difference between an entree, a single entree, and an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> and it obviously will not bring much comfort to the sheep who was eaten that day. Although, indeed, it is true that when the wolf is done eating and he's taking his nap, there are some sheep left for the next time. Now, when God created sheep, he created them to have a symbiotic relationship with man. A relationship in which they would provide for wool and food, and humans would provide shelter, food, and protection. You see, God designed sheep to need a shepherd so that we, he could teach us through that how much we need him. You see, a lone sheep is, is, uh, is wolf's chow, guaranteed victim. So how then can we as Christians possibly expect unbelievers to make righteous decisions when they are facing the enemy all by themselves? It's like a lone sheep fending off a pack of wolves with they're obviously not without having the tools for it. So I would suggest that we stop judging unbelievers for making poor moral decisions and decisions that are not righteous, but start feeling the same kind of compassion that Jesus is displaying right here. 
Matthew goes on and he says, he looked out, he saw the multitudes, felt compassion, and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workforce is small. And then he gives this command to his disciples. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, at this time, it was just Jesus and a couple of disciples facing the entire world population. So this begs the question is, where are these workers coming from? Where are these workers coming from? Host of angels? Some miracles? Of course not. I think Jesus was very, and the disciples were very clear on this one. These workers were coming from the harvest. And we see this taking place right in chapter 10. The same people who are praying for workers to be sent in the harvest field, who who are being sent in the next chapter. They are. They are. So the thing is that the mistake, I think, that we make often in the church is that nowadays we separate, tend to separate the worker from the harvest. In reality, they're one and the same thing. They're not two, but they are one. And each new comfort is not all just being set free from a life of sin or demonic deception, but is called right into the mission field to help other people find the same sense of freedom. You see, this begins already at the salvation process because salvation is not just eternal fire insurance. It is a new life in this world right now. And we are set free to be agents of change in God's kingdom. You see, new comforts should not wait to take up the role in the harvest crew. Because what what do they miss? What do new believers not have? They are sealed in the Holy Spirit. They are gaining contact and immediate access to Almighty God. They have all the stuff available that they inherited when they became children of God. They are washed and cleansed from their sins. So what is it that they're missing? The only difference between a one-day-old believer and somebody who has been walking with with Jesus for several decades is maturity. And I think we have to realize that maturity is gained by experience, not by teaching in a void. It's gained by experience. It does not come about without being in real life, making tough decisions and facing challenges and temptation. But that doesn't happen for in, in, in a, just in a classroom like that. You see, the unfortunate thing is that most of us are spending our entire life to figure out what God has already given us right when we were being saved. And I think the faster we learn that He has given us all the ability to live a, live a godly life, the more effective we become in the expansion of his kingdom. Let's see what what Peter says in his second epistle about it. 
should be up on the screen. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. You see, the Holy Spirit is a better teacher and a better comforter and a better strengther than we as humans can ever be. You see, if we demand new comforts to sit it out for a while or to wait or to go to our curriculum first, we're granting them the permission to be inactive and passive and stagnant. You see, this is unfortunately what many of our churches are and many of the Christians are this day and age. We have separated the workers from the harvest. It's interesting that so many people in the United States don't see themselves adequately prepared to carry out the mission of God in this world. And the number one thing that you hear when you ask people why, I don't know enough. I'm not educated enough. How is that possible when there is a teenage Chinese girl who can start churches all over China? Two years ago, we had a guy here from Sri Lanka or who was a missionary who was overseeing Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and some of those other places. There's people, they were struggling with the idea, how do we go through the ordination process that we have in the Church of the Nazarene with pastors who cannot read? How is that, how is that possible? So a lack of knowledge? I don't think so. I would argue that our, that knowledge is not lagging, but obedience is. We are educated beyond our obedience, and more education is not the answer. Now, this is a tough thing to say for somebody who teaches Sunday school, and I'm not saying that you're wasting your time in there, but what I am saying is these two are going hand in hand, and I think it requires all of us to look at are we, live, are we doing as much as we're knowing? Now, maturity is a beautiful gift that, that, that God gives, grants us in stages. But I would argue that the most effective people in this harvesting crew out in the field harvesting new converts are actually new converts. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, a transformed heart is very evident to the people who live right around them. You see this often happen. In the Bible, you see this a couple of times. Somebody comes to, somebody comes to uh, believe in God, and his entire family household becomes to believe in God. Why? This is a completely different person. That's an incredible gift that you have if you are a young convert. Show it to the world. Show it to your friends. Show it to your coworkers. The second reason is they tend to have more relationships with non-Christians. This is a depressing thing, but most of us Christians have no non-Christian friends. Now, I have to say, you guys are nice folks, but really, we have to invest a little bit, too, in relationships out there. But people who just became Christians tend to have more relationships with non-Christians. And the best thing of this is they actually still speak the same language and are part of the same culture. They have street credibility, so to speak. Now, all these advantages are being lost when we immobilize 
new people, new comforts out of a desire to protect them. I became a Christian as a part of the Navigators, as a st student environment uh, up in, in the Netherlands. It's actually a, an American organization, but they were wor at work in, uh, in Holland as well. And this group met, uh, and we did Bible study and stuff like that. That's basically where I become a, became a Christian. Now, there was one guy who was part of, um, of my philosophy class at, uh, at, at school, and he wanted to come as well, but this guy was totally not a Christian. It's kind of like the guy who wanted to argue Christianity. So I'll take him along. I have him meet the leader of, um, the, of the navigators uh, at that time. And they're having a conversation. And they're having the conversation about um, you know, how to prove Jesus, Jesus in the world. And what happens is that um, my, of, our leader brings out the big guns and brings him into the argument that most of you guys are familiar with, with coming from C.S. Lewis. If Jesus really is who he says he is, he's either a lunatic, a liar, uh, and I forgot what the third one is, but, hmm? Lord. The Lord, there you go. That's the most, the... <laughs> <laughs> See, I also hung up on the contra arguments and I forgot the, the, the real possibility. This guy already knew this argument, says, you know what, I'm not buying it, da-da-da-da, went on like that. So we were having, we did our studies. At the end, we always had like some, some um, refreshments and, and stuff like that. All that stuff that Christians are famous for, you know. You go to Bible study, you eat and you drink. So he was, he was standing there and there was this, this one girl. She was, she had barely come, started to come to the, to the navigator. And I see this guy walking straight to her. And so I'm just kind of telling this little man. You know, he's, this girl is barely a Christian. He's got, this guy is really smart. So they, they talk, and, and at the end, I just get the chance to talk to this, to this girl. And I said, how did it go? I, because I, was, I really wanted to protect her. He says, I think it went all right. I told, he just went off and off and off and off, and I told him that he was way too smart for me. <laughs> but I also told him, I sense that you are lonely. And that's how I felt when I came here. And now I know that Jesus loves me and I don't feel lonely anymore. And this guy started coming back. You see, my first desire, my first reaction was to protect him. But the Holy Spirit used her right where she needed to be with an argument that I can never get. Two sins, I think, we need to repent of in the church, very closely related. I think we need to repent of underestimating what God can do through a new believer. We need to repent of underestimating what God can do through a new believer. And secondly, we need to repent of overestimating our own value in helping a new comfort grow and become a strong believer. We're underestimating God, we're overestimating ourselves. You see, the real thing in this, in this is our assumption that we can do things better than the Holy Spirit. 
And when we do that, we create a sense of dependency on human help rather than on the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is prevalent in, in church, churches today, not just in this church, in a lot of churches, or in a lot of churches, not in this church. You see, by leaning more on human wisdom than on the Holy Spirit, we have created an entire generation of consumers rather than workers who are coming into church every Sunday morning, being spoon-fed the very first of the week, but nothing is going on in their lives. We are called to be agents in the advancement of God's kingdom. You see, often the world doesn't see any differences between us and them because we don't live a different life. And I think if we think that we're going to solve that problem by teaching you more or having a better teaching curriculum, then I think we're missing the point. And we might be more deceived than we really think we are. Let's take a quick look to the, to the Great Commission. You guys are all familiar with this. Okay. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go up and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them what? teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, the key verse, the key part of this verse is teaching them to obey, not just to teach them, to teach them how to obey. Let me, let me tell you what the difference is. Tara is learning how to ride a bike right now, and she sucks at it. <laughs> she is not really good. So our number one rule before she does anything is put up your helmet. Now, am I interested in her just knowing that I want her to put on her helmet? Great, I know, it's gonna impact my skull when I fall to the ground. That's why daddy wants me to wear a helmet. Goes on the bike, no helmet, falls down, boom. Is that knowledge doing her any good? No, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in her to obey my teaching. That's no different in our Christian life. Now, I know this is difficult in a group kind of setting, but often we go from a teaching, kind of hope that everybody picks things up, applies them to their lives, we go on to the next topic, teach again, and hopefully some of these things will stick. That's different than what we're doing with our children. With our children, what we're doing is like, this is why you gotta do it. No, 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 let's go back, do it again. Can you do that one more time, please? Let's repeat this, see if you really got it. We're teaching them obedience. Now, Jesus had no problem sending out people earlier rather than later. He had no problem sending them out, as we learned during James' series, as sheep amongst wolves, rather than trying to protect them, hold them back. He sent out the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was just moving along on the road, 
trying to read the pieces of, pieces of scripture that he did not understand. Philip teaches him about that. Guy gets baptized, boom, Philip is gone. God literally yanks Philip away from this believer, so go figure it out, do it yourself. Now, we don't know this from the Bible, but the gospel spread into Ethiopia right from there. Another story, Samaritan woman. Jesus is sitting at the well. This lady's coming up. He says, can I have something to drink? This lady, interesting enough, appears in the middle of the day. Now, most of you guys know why she appeared in the middle of the day. She was an adulteress. She was being despised by the people of the town that she lived in. So she came by herself during the middle of the day, knowing that she would not encounter anybody down there. Jesus had sent his disciples up to the town where the lady came from. So he's having a conversation with this, with this woman. She comes to the amazing proclamation of, you are indeed the Christ, the Messiah. That point, she leaves her water jug. She no longer needs it. She has just encountered the living water. Takes off to town, meets the disciples. Of the disciples are actually just made it back to town, uh, to the well as well. They're seeing Jesus sitting there with this woman, and they're wondering, like, <laughs> Jesus takes these guys while the woman is going back through her town and rattling up everybody in town that she can find to meet this savior. The disciples were just there full force. They were there with 12 guys. They come back with nothing but a piece of bread to show for them. Jesus, do you want some bread too? He said, no, no, no. And then he starts to talk to them about the harvest as well. Now it's interesting that Jesus, you see, this lady didn't go just back to any kind of environment. This lady went back to a hostile environment. I mean, here is, I mean, when she would enter that town, people would probably also look, there's the prostitute. But she rattled them up, brought them back. They got the chance to talk to Jesus, and they all became believers. Now, here you got a group of guys who had private Bible study 24-7 by the Son of God himself. And they're... And here you got a lady that is despised and rejected. But something had changed in her. And she went. And Jesus was not like, okay, you know what? Hold on. Don't go yet. Let me just do Bible 101 with you. Let's teach you hermeneutics. Let's teach you scripture harmonization. No. Just go out. Last example that I want to give you is that of a demonic man who was chained up constantly broke his chains. That's how strong and how wicked he was. He was moved, he was roaming around in the graves and in caves on the edge of town because nobody could contain him. Jesus comes around, Jesus, son of God. A whole army cries out of, of demons that had possessed this man. Not just one, 50 of them. Legion was what they called, because we are with many. So Jesus drives out the demons, puts them in a herd of pigs. The pigs fly over the cliff. The guy is liberated. Then the villagers show up. Do you think they're happy that this guy is finally, that he's finally set free? Jesus, our pigs, please go. 
don't do this stuff in our backyard. We're having a loss down here. The demonic man, or at that time he's not demonic anymore, comes to this point. Let's bring it, bring it up in, uh, on, on the screen. It says this. I have verse 18 here. That's okay. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Can you believe this? Jesus is working miracles. Can you please go? As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who was demon-possessed begged him with, to go with him. This is the whole, I'm just going to stop here for one. This is the biggest compliment a pastor can get. Somebody who wants to follow, who wants to come along. What does Jesus do? Come back. Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who was, had been done with his head begged, him, begged to go with him. Next verse, please. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how, many, uh, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Here is a guy with no credibility whatsoever. He was a lunatic. They had to chain him up. I mean, this is literally a guy who escaped, escaped what we probably would say uh, the war. And he comes back to town and says, look what happened to me. Jesus did not say at this point, you know, I have to protect you from these people. They changed you up before. They don't understand. They even want me to move. This is a, these are people that are not going to be very acceptable to us. No, Jesus said, go right back. And as a matter of fact, don't just go back to your own town. Go to all nine cities around it too. The couple is ten towns. You see, he sends them with little or no human assistance. God greatly honors this kind of faith because it is put in him rather than in our own abilities. You know, for all our efforts to be trying to be responsible for people's spiritual growth, we have to realize that it is God who causes the growth, not us. It's ironic that this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, was written especially to the Jewish people. This gospel is conveying the message that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And who does God pick? A tax collector. Now, a tax collector was in a sin group all by itself because the Pharisees were telling him he was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. So they were in a group all by themselves. And... That's the kind of person that God picks to write this gospel. You see, if I had to do it, I would go up to the synagogue. I would try to pull out the most well-respected, the most well-taught, the highest educated Pharisee, say, hey, you, a guy like Paul, you're going to write this because you know how to make this argument. Paul ends up ministering to the Gentiles. All his educational background 
his ability to claim I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees, out the door, no use whatsoever. You see, I think God does things this way because the glory and the credibility are found in Him and in changed lives rather than in our ability to teach. First, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about this very thing to the people of Corinthians, and he says this. Uh, I'm going to do one verse before that, so just listen. But he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the wrong. Do we have any young believers in this room? Anybody who would say, I have been walking with the Lord for less than a year? The harvest field is where you need to be. We love to teach you. We love to take you to our curriculum. But we want to teach you obedience rather than knowledge. You see, when you go to the harvest field, you will be stretched beyond what you're comfortable of. And that is exactly the point. Because then you will start putting your trust in him who will enable you. For those of us, and let me make clear that I am included in this, who have been consumers rather than workers, let's confess our sins and roll up our sleeves. You know, once again, I know this sounds crazy from a Sunday school teacher, but if you want to walk alongside with me and roll up your sleeves and go into the harvest field, I am inviting you to partner with me. Because I know for my own life that this is where my next step in spiritual growth lays. Not in going to more seminaries, not in more sermons, but in actually being the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. For those in leadership, and once again, I'm including myself in that category, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that we somehow can grow the faith of others, because only God can do this. But help us to trust fully in the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in people other than ourselves. Thank you very much.